Please pray with me. Father, we ask that during this time, you would take our hearts and our minds into your hands and shape them as you desire. We pray that you would give us fresh understanding into your word and mold us into the people you want us to be. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. It's now 1051. It is now 10 years and 23 minutes since the second World Trade Center tower collapsed. That was one of the first days on the job for John O'Neill. Mr. O'Neill was the chief of security for the World Trade Center. He had just ended a 25-year career as an FBI special agent. Agent O'Neill was absolutely convinced that Osama bin Laden was planning a major attack on the United States. He was outspoken about this conviction in the FBI. He had led the investigation into the bombing of the USS Cole. He was one of the first in the FBI to catch on to the threat that Al-Qaeda posed. He was frequently called by then Attorney General Janet Reno and asked for his insight. But his obsession with the threat that Osama bin Laden posed got him in hot water with his superiors at the FBI. He was marginalized and left the agency in late August. Believing that Al-Qaeda wanted to finish the job that Ramzi Youssef had begun in bombing the World Trade Center in 1993, John found purpose in his new role. On the night of September 10th, Agent O'Neill was having drinks with a friend, and he told his friend, we're due, and we're due for something big. The way things are lining up in Afghanistan, I just sense a shift, and I think things are going to happen. When, his friend asked. I don't know, but soon. The friends parted company at 2.30 a.m. Later that morning, John O'Neill would die doing his job. There are so many words we could share about that day. Tales of tragedy, courage, compassion. As zealous as Agent O'Neill was, and protecting the people of America, and protecting the people in the World Trade Center, Jesus Christ is just as zealous to protect not only your body, but your hearts and our souls and our minds. As we reflect on these horrific, offensive events, what words might this Jesus have for us? What words might this chief of security for our souls have for us? He has words of justice, reassurances that he will make everything right in due time. He has words of consolation to the grieving. 
But he also has words that we will find offensive. He has words of forgiveness. Imploring us for the sake of our souls and for the sake of the kingdom to love our enemies. Those far away and those near. This morning I want to address three questions. Why is forgiveness so offensive? On what basis does Jesus ask us to forgive others? And does this forgiveness apply to the events that happened on 9-11? Why or why not? First, why is forgiveness so offensive? We often think of forgiveness as warm and fuzzy. In Christian circles, we talk so much about forgiveness that sometimes we can forget how offensive it is. Post-Gazette columnist Tony Norman retells the story of Raz Bouihan. Mr. Bouihan is a Muslim immigrant from Bangladesh. He worked at a gas station with two other Asian immigrants. A few days after 9-11, Mark Stroman, a self-proclaimed Arab slayer, walked into the Texas gas station where these three immigrants worked. Mr. Stroman asked Mr. Bouihan where he was from, but before Mr. Bouihan could answer, he said, he heard an explosion and felt the sensation of a million bees stinging my face. He had been shot in the face by a shotgun. Mr. Stroman killed the other two workers, but Mr. Bouihan survived. He lost his right eye. He still has shotgun pellets in his cheek that doctors were unable to remove. A jury quickly found Mr. Stroman guilty and sentenced him to death. Meanwhile, Mr. Bouihan went on his pilgrimage to Mecca. And while he was there, he was overcome with the desire to forgive Mr. Stroman. He returned to America and began a campaign for the state of Texas to forgive Mr. Stroman as well. He asked them to turn the other cheek as he had done. He reminded them that his cheek was full of shotgun pellets. The two men never met, but they exchanged letters and cultivated a good relationship. Mr. Bouyan started an online petition to save Mr. Stroman's life. It didn't work. He filed a suit to stop his, assailant, his assailant's execution. The suit was rejected. Before Mr. Stroman died, he said, It is due to Ra's message of forgiveness that I am more content now than I ever have been. Can you imagine a racist skinhead saying that to a Muslim immigrant he tried to kill? Can you imagine a skinhead turning his back on his old ways like that? It happened because the man he once hated forgave him. Forgiveness is powerful, but it is often offensive. Why did the Texas court system not forgive Mr. Stroman and hold off on the death sentence? Because it was offensive to their sense of justice. And before you say, well, that's Texas... Before we go down that road, we need to probe our own hearts. 
What happens when someone has wronged you in a deep or even a petty way? Is your first response mercy or anger? Mine is anger. And when that happens, how long does that anger last? How easily does forgiveness come to you? When you're faced with forgiving someone who may be sorry, but they have altered your life in a way that can't be taken back. When they have done something to you and you have to live with the pellets still in your face. It's a tough job balancing justice and forgiveness. But if we're honest with ourselves, forgiveness is offensive. So often what we want is justice. Justice is a good thing. But sometimes we think that justice is this drug that will fix everything. That it will soothe our wounds and, like a painkiller, make us feel better. And forgiveness flies in the face of that. And it is often offensive to our desire for justice. When we look at the cross, we rightly see a treasure in the cross. But 2,000 years ago, as Jesus hung on that cross, as people walked by that electric chair, many shook their heads at that stupid idiot hanging there, ridiculing him. Forgiveness always has a cost, and it is often offensive. So if forgiveness is so offensive, on what basis does Jesus ask us to do this offensive thing? He asks us to forgive on the basis that we have been forgiven. And he asks us to forgive on the basis that we can never out-forgive God. Our passage in Matthew begins with Peter asking Jesus, Lord, if someone in the church sins against me, how many times do I need to forgive them? Is seven times enough? Seven times. If you think about it, that's a lot. Has a specific person in this building right now ever sinned against you? To the point that in your mind, if not in your actions, you said, I'm cutting them off. This is enough. They're so stupid. This is ridiculous. Don't they understand what they've done? How can they be so incompetent? I'm shutting them out. If we forgive that person once, it's very tempting for us to think that we've been a very big person. But then they go and do something else. And you've forgiven once. You've put yourself in harm's way twice now. And it's tempting to say, this is the end of the line, no more. But Jesus comes in and says, no, it's okay, keep forgiving. In fact, so when you think about it, seven times is a lot. But Jesus tells Peter, not seven times, but 77 times. Some translations read seven times 70 times. Jesus seems to be saying, forgive an unlimited amount of times. As a side note, none of this applies to physical or mental abuse. If that's going on, you need to end the relationship. Just get out, and you can forgive that person later from a distance. 
But for the rest of us, Jesus calls us to forgive time and time again. What would life be like if God had a certain number of times that he was willing to forgive you, and after that, you were on your own? To further answer Peter's question, Jesus tells the story of a man who badly needed to be forgiven. This man owed the king 10,000 talents. A talent was a monetary unit worth 15 years' wages. So let's say this man was making $50,000 a year. That would make one talent $750,000. And that takes 10,000 talents, comes out to $7.5 billion. The GDP of a small country. One man owed his king $7.5 billion. We're not told what this man did to lose this outrageous sum of money. Obviously, the king had been very generous already in letting the tab continue for this long. Since the man can't pay, the king orders his family to be sold to to make up for a tiny portion of this bill. But as the sentence is being read, the slave pleads for mercy, saying, Have patience with me and I'll give you everything. It was a ridiculous idea. How is he going to pay for everything? But in a surprising twist, the king changes his mind. He decides to let this man and his family go, and he forgives the entire debt. Can you imagine a CEO of a company doing that? He'd be fired tomorrow morning at the emergency board meeting. Forgiveness has a price, and it is often offensive. So this newly forgiven man leaves bankruptcy court and meets another man who owed him a hundred denarii. A denarius was the monetary unit for one day's wage. So taking a $50,000 salary, a denarius is $192. So this newly forgiven man is owed $19,200. This debtor gives the exact same speech. But instead of having mercy, the man who owed billions threw the man who owed him 20000 in jail until he could pay. So word of this starts to spread, gets back to the king. The king is infuriated, throws the man he forgave the huge debt of in jail to have him tortured until he can pay the last penny. And Jesus says... This is like the kingdom of heaven. We have this king, we have this God who forgives the massive debt we have no way of paying him. He forgives us. We have no hope without his forgiveness. And what others owe us in comparison is puny to how much we owe God. We can never out-forgive God. We can never forgive others as much as God has forgiven us. The vast sum that the first man owed tells us that we have a hard time comprehending how much we owe God. Jesus goes on to say that when we, who have been forgiven so much, do not forgive others, we put our very own forgiveness in jeopardy. This is the basis on which Jesus asks us to forgive others. On the basis that we can never outforgive God. 
So now to our third question. Does this forgiveness apply to the events of 9-11? There are two reasons to make a case that it does not. First of all, you may notice that Peter is asking a question about the church. He says, Lord, when my brother and sisters, when somebody else in the church sins against me, that is one good reason to say it does not apply to the events of 9-11. Another is that the debtors here both ask for mercy. They realize they've messed up. So you can make a case that it does not apply to 9-11. You could say maybe once those bombers come and plead for mercy, then we can talk about forgiving them. And it's true. Repentance is a huge part of reconciling a relationship with someone. But what would have happened if God had waited to send Jesus until we all said we're sorry, until we all pleaded for forgiveness? Jesus takes the step and goes to the cross before we even know that we need the cross. Here's the crux of the issue. Do the 9-11 bombers deserve to be forgiven? To be clear, I am not asking you to forgive them. Unless we had a loved one who died in the attacks, it may not even be our place to forgive them. I'm not asking you to forgive them, but I am asking you to consider whether or not they deserve being forgiven by God. I'm asking this because I want us to wrestle with God's mercy. Jesus was the person in the world most affected and most hurt by 9-11. Many people had one or two loved ones who died that day. Jesus had thousands of loved ones who died that day. Is it possible that God will forgive those people? I ask that because 9-11 shaped our identity as a country in a huge way. But even more central to our identity as Americans and as people who lived through 9-11 is our identity as a forgiven people asked to love our enemies. How can we, as God's ambassadors of transformation, change the conversation and begin to love our enemies this 9-11? I have one more difficult question for you. Do you deserve to be forgiven? Why or why not? Is there anything that makes you more worthy of God's forgiveness than the 9-11 bombers? You may say, well, yeah, of course. I've never done anything that bad. And I'm a good person. When we get caught in that way of thinking, it's a trap. And when we get locked in there, we get into this mindset that we can earn our forgiveness and that won't work. These thoughts may sound offensive and they may rub you the wrong way. And if that's the case, that's okay. But I don't think your beef is with me. I think it's with Jesus. He was constantly ticking people off with his radical message of forgiveness to those who did not deserve it. 
9-11 was not the first time that a group of people Jesus loved dearly were massacred. And unfortunately, it won't be the last time either. When such events happen, he has words of justice for us. He will make all things right one day. He has words of consolation for us, words and presence of his comfort as we grieve. But he also has challenging words to us to recognize how great his mercy is and in gratitude for that mercy to love our enemies. He asks us as a people who have been rescued and forgiven by the cross to take that transformational power of the cross out into the world, into a world that desperately needs it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that so many emotions and thoughts come to mind as we remember this awful day that happened 10 years ago. We thank you that you know all that. We thank you that you were affected personally too. And we pray that you would help us to think rightly about these things in our hearts and in our minds. I pray that you would help us to know how to process our anger, our hurt, our pain. I pray that you would help us to realize how much mercy you have lavished on us in ways that we could never hope to repay. And I pray that you would enable us, out of receiving that mercy, to love our enemies. Show us the way. We ask this all in your name. Amen.